Let's get going. Madeline Jager, 19, is an accomplished singer, actress, performer, and student. Because of her artistic and academic excellence, she has received over 116,000 in scholarships to attend Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. This is the story about a person who works extremely hard at what she loves and was rewarded for it. It is also the story of a lady who works extremely hard at the rest of her life. The nitty-gritty, less fun details like filling out forms and trying hard not just in your favorite class, but also in your least favorite class. She does all this in order to get the job done, all the while enriching other people's lives and having fun along the way. Hey, Madeline. Hello. (laughs) Do you go by Maddie or Madeline? I go by Madeline, yes. That's the college switch, so. (laughs) Okay, okay. Yes, uh, a a brand new identity. That's right. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, let's um, go back in time to your secret origin story. Um, Tell me just a little bit about your family. Yeah, so I don't know how secret it is. It was kind of a normal (laughs) childhood, but I'm the oldest of three kids. So there's me and I have twin brothers who will be seniors in high school and then a sister's a sophomore. So we're all kind of smushed in there, which I'm very grateful for my poor mother as we were growing up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I'm born and raised in Kansas. Catholic family ever since I can remember. Uh, my dad's from Minnesota, so we make a lot of trips to Minnesota throughout the year, which I thought was fun. I love road trips, so it's kind of born there. But very close to my siblings, close enough to fight, but also close enough to make up pretty soon afterwards. So I'm really blessed with a really great childhood and a super great family. Big extended family on my dad's side, which is awesome. So it's been great. <laughs> Well, that is awesome, and I want to ask, and I'm going to go back to childhood, and part of the reason I do this is I was listening to this author I really respect. His name is Orson uh, Orson Scott Card, and he always writes about his characters' childhoods because he just thinks that your childhood is monumentally impactful, and oftentimes in movies and books, people just skip over that. So so let's talk about your childhood. What kind of a kindergartner were you? (laughs) Oh my goodness. I was the kindergartner who wanted to get school started right away. <laughs> you know, and when you're younger, school kind of starts a couple months into the school year and they start off with coloring or getting to know friends, but I wanted homework. I was that strange kindergartner who heard about homework from her older friends and I told my teachers, let's go, I'll get my homework done. So I love school ever since I can remember. I was a very exciting kindergartner. I was ready to go. <laughs> I'm just picturing this three foot tall, four foot tall, five year old, hands on hips saying, let's go. That's right. That was probably me. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So grade school comes along. What kind of a grade school kid were you? Yeah. Uh, well, that continued to develop. I was a book nerd. I remember my teacher would tell me coming back from library class that I'd have to stop reading in the hallway because I'd actually read in the hallway and trip and not know exactly where I was going. But I still love school. Um, grade school is when I started transitioning from sports into theater, which I know we'll talk about a bit later, but I realized sports are fun, but I much prefer to be a drama queen and actually be celebrated for it instead of my mom telling me to stop singing over the house. So that's when I kind of started developing my passions too. That's awesome. Drama on stage instead of like, I don't know, drama in the back room with the girls or something. Yep. Or, yep. or the guys as, as far as that may go. Um, yeah. <laughs> in high school, what did you like to do? 
Yeah, so high school, definitely theater for sure. Um, singing, dancing, performing was super fun. My senior year, I did CYO basketball just for fun, which that I did not do well or play well, but I had so much fun. So, um, and thrift shopping. I found my love for thrift shopping in high school. So on the weekends, you can find me at your local thrift store. Yep. That's also very entertaining and very fun and cool. Okay, so that's high school. And let's let's get into the acting and the singing and the performing and just all those type of things. So you love to sing. When did you first figure that out? And yeah, we'll just take it from there. Yeah. I, I grew up singing. My grandma, my mom's side, so her mom was an opera singer, my grandmother's mother. And so I just grew up with music all around me. My grandma loved it. I'd listen to West Side Story and Sound of Music and all these things. And I just would sing along with it. So by the time I was eight years old, my mom's like, hmm, we should probably get you into voice lessons. Uh, not because, I, well, I probably was bad at eight years old. So she's like, we need help. So there's a screeching around the house. But that's when it really started, and I just loved it so much because, like I mentioned before, I was already a drama queen, but I had an outlet to take it out on. And then there's a ton of other kids who loved it, too. So I just loved to sing, especially. That's where it started, but then it kind of blossomed into acting and dancing as well. I think that it's just so awesome when parents just roll with the gifts that their kids have. And, and I've just got this theory that a lot of adults would be happier if they would just go back to before they were 12 and ask themselves, what did I really love to do? Because right. if you loved it when you were eight, I'm just not convinced that there's all that much difference in people between the age of two and 102. I think we just do a lot of the exact same stuff. So, so that's just, I just really want to give your parents a compliment for latching onto that. And then, and also to you for just thinking that it was so fun. Yeah. And, and just being willing to do the work. As a singer, how do you describe yourself? Oh, that, that's a really good question. Um, my tone, I guess, per se, I've definitely matured a lot over the years. I've always had a natural vibrato. So for those who are familiar with singing, that's kind of where it fluctuates a little bit at the end. Um, so definitely more of a classical tone than some people are more into pop singing or jazz or things like that. I've done different genres, but I'm definitely musical theater, classical type of person. So if you listen to my voice, it'd be more familiar with musicals versus, you know, your latest pop song or things like that. Absolutely. I saw you in a production of The Drowsy Chaperone. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I've never done this in my life. I just absolutely love plays. I love theater. I just, I, I eat that stuff up. My mom was a librarian. Maybe that's why. Um, I, I went and I saw the play four times. Wow. There were, yeah. there were four nights where you could see it. And usually I, I can go once and then that's just fine. And just, uh, you were just a showstopper in <laughs> that. You. So just absolutely fantastic. Um, soprano, alto? Soprano, mezzo-soprano. Yeah, so in between kind of. Okay. And then how big is your range? Is one octave, two octaves, two and a half? Oh goodness. I I wish I could tell you I actually don't know. It's gotten I've gotten higher throughout the years, so I guess I'm more of a soprano now, is more of a mezzo going into high school. But the highest I can hit a high C and I can mm, probably an F below middle C, so I know that isn't proper musical terms, but that would probably be my range. But if there's <laughs> if there's ever a point in the middle of this conversation where you want to bust out into song or play a part, you just feel free. You completely have my permission to do so. 
Oh, wow. Well, thank you. We'll see. We'll see if we're moving and grooving that way. <laughs> yeah, if, if the muse just strikes, I guess. Um, yeah, that's right. Okay, so so a soprano and getting a little higher. Is there anything as a singer that you just really should avoid? Again, my laundry list. Um, something that's hard for me is yelling because I I'm a passionate talker. So <laughs> when I get excited, I talk louder. But that definitely does put stress on your vocal cords. So yelling is something you should definitely avoid. And also, just drinking soda is really not great because mm. sometimes in show week you need a coke to get through the week. You know, you need that caffeine. Not great idea. I've learned from personal experience. So two well. good things, but. Not for singing. Um, what about tea or coffee? Mm. So I wasn't a coffee drinker in high school, so I couldn't really tell you about that. But I learned to love tea because of singing and acting. I used to hate it, but I needed throat coat, especially if you're a singer out there and you need something. Throat coat brand is great. It tastes not so great, but it's <laughs> very nice for the vocal folds. So that's okay. the way to go. Okay. Um, and I just got done interviewing a very athletic person. And so I'm, I'm also just kind of curious about things like, I don't know, diet, exercise, things like that. Uh, does that come into play? I'm sure, I'm sure it does. For me, I just tried to be as healthy as possible, which was definitely hard during show week. And certain numbers where you'd have to dance and sing, which in the Jurassic Chaperone, there were a couple of those that I struggled with a bit. I would do jumping jacks and try to sing as I'm doing that, which is a whole different level. So that was my exercise, trying to exercise and sing. <laughs> I can't even imagine. That sounds ins I'm going to have to try that later That's today. <laughs> well, I, I like to sing, and I grew up in a small town, and so I was able to be involved in some of the plays and things like that because there were 800 people in the town, and there was just a desperate shortage of guy actors. Mm -hmm. So you could always get a part if you were a guy. And actually, the town was small enough. You could pretty much always get a part if you were a girl. Um, right. But I just, uh, so I like to sing, and, and I don't have a great voice, but I'm basically always on key. So in a small town, that was just considered to be a big plus. But exactly. I, I have to try this now. Sorry, sorry, I was talking about me. I should be going well, back to great. you. Let me know how it goes. Okay, I, I will. Um, okay, so then you love to act. When did this love develop? Acting probably came more in high school because when I was in grade school, I more did theater for the fun of it because of my friends and I was always in the ensemble. So just doing what everyone else did. But once I got into high school and had more opportunities to play deeper roles, I realized I loved getting into someone else's shoes and I loved kind of doing a character study of someone who isn't real, but I got to make him real on stage. So really in high school is when I started developing that. Okay. Um, what musicals and plays have you been in? from the time I was eight. Yeah. What? Which is crazy. Yes. Yeah. Mostly musicals. I'm a big, obviously, music gal. I love plays. They're great, but just music takes it to the next level. Um, some that I can think of my top, off the top of my head. Wizard of Oz was my first musical. I've done Set of Music, Charlotte's Web, Mulan, Tarzan, Fiddler on the Roof twice. One of my favorites. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, Dragon. Guys a Chaperone, Mary Poppins, Guys and Dolls, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Big Fish, Anything Goes, You're in Town, which is a fun musical. <laughs> um, B 
Beauty and the Beast. Those are the ones I can think off the top of my head, but a lot of Disney ones. Very fun. I'm dazzled. I just, <laughs> wow. And just the fact that you could remember all of those even, it's just really, really cool. Um, what was the most fun you think you ever had? Oh. It's probably not a fair question. Right. There's, oh, there's so many. It's like a parent being asked, who is your favorite child? Yeah, I know. All of them. <laughs> yes. Um, there's, so there's two that come to mind. One was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers when I was a freshman in high school. That was the first leading role I ever got after doing probably 10 or so shows. So I played Millie Pontipi in Seven Brides. And I had so much fun just because it combined the acting and the singing and also the dancing. There was lots of partner dancing, which I thought was so fun. I got really close to that cast, especially the Seven Brides and Brothers. And that, that was really, really fun. So that was probably one of my favorite shows. And also Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I played one of the wives. And so lots of dancing um, from different eras. So you'd have a 1920s kind of Gatsby style to a 1950s swing dancing. So you kind of got everything in one show. So that was a lot of fun. That is actually a terrific play. If people have not seen that, I mean, uh, most of the ones you've mentioned I've seen. And I just actually, I love, I love practically everything that you've mentioned. Um, but Joseph and the Amazing yeah. Technicolor Dreamcoat is just a ridiculously fun play. It just really is. Um, what do you think the hardest role you've ever had to play is? The first thing that came to mind, which kind of surprised me, was actually playing a tree in Peter Pan. What? <laughs> because it, so this was an ensemble role, but I really wanted to make it something special. But it's kind of hard to be a special tree. You know, you just kind of stand there. And my specific role was to stand, well, I guess you can't see. But I had my arms, both of my arms up, and Peter Pan was going to put his sword on my branches. So that was a really big moment. But it was really difficult <laughs> to try to make that stand out to be an expressive tree. So that was pretty hard. Did Do you feel like you succeeded? That, that I don't know, you conquered treeness or, or <laughs> something? I, I think I did. Specifically, there was one moment where the curtain the curtain drew back and the music didn't play. They were having an error. And so my brilliant, you know, seventh grade mind, I started to sway a little bit. And I just thought, you know, that was super, I was really on top of the improv there. And my mom's friend told me at the end of the show that I really helped with the awkwardness because I started swaying. So I really think I conquered the essence of the tree for sure. <laughs> what a tough role. I mean, it just, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you've been able to have the lead in other plays. And yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it'd be very, very tough, I think, to just be a tree. Um, yeah. <laughs> as an actress, how would you describe yourself? That's a hard question because actress is a very blank slate because you play so many different characters. But I think me as an actress... I really, I really like the emotional moments, so I'm really driven towards the core emotions of a character and what makes them, what makes them be really happy, what makes them be really sad. So I really play from an emotional perspective. Some people play from different perspectives, like focusing on childhood or focusing on motives, but I really like focusing on emotions. So I'm pretty compassionate, I guess, as an actress trying to work with the character's emotions. Is there a is there a trick to getting inside of a character's mind and heart. What is, if there is, what is it? 
Sure. That would definitely depend on every person for sure. <laughs> for me, for me, I really like character mapping. So at the beginning of every show, especially if I had a named character with some qualities already given to me, I would just write out her bio and where she comes from. A lot of times I'd make it up. Um, so where she comes from, her family, her motives, just write it all out and go over it a lot. Um, so I have something to work through. And then knowing that information, kind of studying um, beforehand, when during the scene, I'd already know what to work on. And so it was a lot easier to get into the character's mind when I already knew the facts of where she came from. Okay, so if you're playing a character who is, oh, I don't know, like in the Drowsy Chaperone, where she's engaged, and so maybe she's, I can't remember, 22, 23 years old, maybe right, some, young, yeah. in that ballpark, but, but you've written out her biography, so maybe you knew what she was like when she was 5 or 10. Sure. Yeah, and Drowsy Chaperone is very difficult because technically I played an actress who was playing a character. Yeah. So I had to kind of do the backstories of the actress. I forget her name. I should know her name, but the actress who was playing Janet Vandegraaff. So kind of had to work with two things there, which was a challenge, but very fun. That's, yeah, that's just amazing. Well, I mean, authors will do that when they write a book, that sometimes they will do these long character sketches that nobody else ever sees. That's just for the right. author to just really get to know their character. I had no idea that actresses and actors did that too, so I, I guess I'm just yeah. very impressed. I just think that's cool. Um, do you think you're more at home in comedy or drama or something else? Because the reason I'm asking is because you just got done saying you like to really get to the hearts of a character and you like these dramas. And yet Drowsy Chaperone was hilarious. And <laughs> right. like I said, I saw it four times and I just, I laughed all four nights. <laughs> yeah. So surprisingly drama is where I'm a lot more comfortable. So Drowsy Chaperone was a bit of a stretch for me. It was my last show that I did until college until now. And it was a comedy. And so that was really fun, but I definitely am a lot more comfortable on the more dramatic side. Okay. I, you just seem so natural in it and you just really threw everything in it. Um, it was just amazing. Okay. Let's talk training. How do you grow your skills um, as a singer or as an actress? And you can start wherever you want to start. I'll probably ask you quite a bit about both if I can. Sure. Yeah, so singing was definitely where I started at the very beginning, like I mentioned before when I was eight. So I started training with a vocal coach, which sounds very proper, when I was eight years old, just a family friend. And I probably transitioned through three or four voice coaches throughout the year, and each coach had a different emphasis. So my beginning coach was just, you know, learning how to sing, how to breathe properly, which takes a lot of time, mm. and, and kind of relearning how to breathe when you sing because it's different. Um, going to a coach at Miller Marley who I did more musical theater and learned a little bit of jazz and then my last vocal coach I worked a lot with classical singing because in high school the last two years in choir I really got into singing classically kind of going to my operatic roots which I never did opera but I'd love to someday um, so definitely it was very helpful doing going to specific coaches for specific things and that helped me grow in the certain area that I was looking for whether it be musical theater or choir or things like that so that was singing for sure well let's let me dig into that just a little bit is it highly yeah. technical it is it's a lot more technical than I ever thought a lot of um a lot of specific ways you need to hold yourself that I didn't realize you think about your rib cage and your abdomen and your chest and your shoulders and you know when you think of singing you just kind of do it but in a voice lesson I've even had 
vocal coaches just put their hands on my abdomen and my back to watch how I'm specifically breathing mm. because it is a lot more technical than people think of. There's proper form involved right. in it, which makes sense to me. Like I said, I just interviewed somebody who lifts weights and just a gigantic part of lifting weights properly is proper form. Uh, without proper form, you could easily throw your back out of whack and uh, you're just not working the muscles that you want to work. Worst case scenario is injury. Best case scenario, if you're not using proper form, is you're just not going to get the results you want. And right. so it appears to be the same thing for singing. That's just fascinating to me. Right. Okay. Um, let's see. Then as an actress, how do you build your skills? Yeah, I definitely wish I took a lot more classes as I was growing up. I know there are acting classes, but at least for me, it was watching other people, watching a lot of film, a lot of um, movies that were pertaining to the musicals I was auditioning for that I was in, kind of digging into the actress or actors themselves um, and just doing it over and over and over again. Every role prepared me more for the next role. If you, if you do it right, if you really learn um, – from the experience itself, that was kind of my training for the next role versus taking classes like I did with singing. Okay, so the current role is training for the next role is part of what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah. If you learn similar emotions from my show, you know, four or five years ago, if it was Hunchback at Notre Dame and I played this role, then, oh, I learned from there how to really get into anger. And so, in, mm. you know, four or five years when I played into this role, that helped me a lot. There's different schools of acting. There's method acting, and then there's just all these other things. Do you belong to a particular school of act, acting that you know of? I I don't think so, because I kind of uh, <laughs> taught myself in a way I'm not classically trained or trained in method acting. So not really, but that'd be kind of fun. Okay. Well, and then there are movie directors out there. Now, maybe this is different for plays. Like, I, I don't know how many rehearsals a person has to go through, but... Uh, you know, I've, I've heard of people like Stanley Kubrick, who, when he makes a film, he might literally do 70 takes of one scene, yeah. like 50, 60, 70 takes. And then on the opposite end, I've heard Clint Eastwood oftentimes will do like one run through and then one take, possibly two takes. And he almost never does three. And there was like one rare case where they were just doing the run through for practice and he thought it was pretty good. So he asked the cameraman if the cameras were rolling and the guy said, yeah, yeah, we got that. And Eastwood goes, good, we're done. With oh, the, wow. <laughs> yeah. So like they didn't even do the, they didn't even do one take. They just took the run through and wow. used that. So just, so these are the opposite ends. People who do one or two takes and people who do 70 takes. Right. Where are you? Well, I was trained in the one take because musicals are live, so I never really got the luxury of doing it over and over again. I think if I if I was a movie person, which I'm definitely not, but if I was, that probably stressed me out because I would have a lot more room to be perfectionistic. But in theater, if you don't do it right, then you just fix it the next time, and you kind of roll with your mistakes live, which is a lot more freeing and a lot more fun, I think, than trying to get it perfect every single I would think so. I, I believe in revising essays, but if I had to do 70 takes of a recording of something, I, I don't know. I think that might just make me lose my mind. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but, but I guess what I'm getting at, because I know that you do plays, is how many rehearsals do you have to do to do one of those showstopper songs? Right. Well, 
For a full musical, I've done everything from learning a musical in a week, which is CYT Extreme Camps. You get there on Sunday night and you perform the next Thursday night. So I've done everything from that to a normal St. James musical. Oh, goodness. I'm going to butcher it. You rehearsal every day after school for probably two months, so whatever that means. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, and CYT is probably like 20 rehearsals, but lots and lots of hours. Some people don't realize that, that there's, you don't just show up and do your thing, but... No, I mean, you are looking at, like you said, eight weeks, uh, eight times five, that's 40 rehearsals is what yeah, I'm counting. Yeah, right. And then maybe right. you have to do things outside of rehearsal. Maybe you have to do things on weekends and things like that. That's pretty yeah. incredible. Uh, I had um, an athletic director say to me that he, of course, like coached all these sports, but he said that the theater kids all get closer than the athletes. And I, I don't know how you would measure that, but... Do you feel like you get super close to the other cast members? You do. You definitely do. And that's one of the hardest things about a show ending. We call it show pression is that you have to leave all your cast because you grow so close. And I think the reason is because you're growing close in a story. Yeah. Something that's really centered where sports, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if it's a win or a loss. And that is a relationship in itself. But with theater, you're growing close in a story that gives a message. And so you're all so bought into the exact same thing that you kind of feed off of each other. And it's a really close bond. It's been hard to leave multiple times. Oh, I bet. Well, I know that it was for me. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about work ethic because sometimes on the outside, I think people think actors and singers are just playing around and it just looks so fun. <laughs> you know, it just looks like such such joy and and just effortless. And so I guess I'm kind of wondering about the the work ethic. Um, you know, are you getting up before dawn or are you putting in like six hours a day? What what are you doing? Yeah. So. Specifically in the realm of St. James musicals, what I'm thinking of, there's definitely a lot of work ethic because right after school, so you're waking up early to get ready for school anyways, and you're going to school, and then you have multiple hours of rehearsal afterwards. And rehearsal, so much, I mean, it's like practice, but we always pretend it's like performance because why would you do anything half effort? You should give it your all. So it's a constant trying to give your best, which Mr. Hernandez, which was our director at St. James always did a great job of enforcing, do your best. If your best looks different today than it does tomorrow because you're super tired, that's okay. But acting requires you to pretend it's your performance every time. So that is a lot of energy. That's very draining, especially if it's a draining emotional scene. And in rehearsal, you do do it over and over and over again. But every time is supposed to be like it's performance. So you need a very high work ethic to continue to to give the same amount of energy and the same amount of stamina as you would as a performance for the hundreds and hundreds of times you do it in rehearsal. Yeah, you just really have to put every last little morsel into it. Yeah. Yeah, I wish more people realized that. Okay, so then you go off to college. And for you, I guess I am wondering, what is the purpose of college? Sounds almost like a trick question. <laughs> um, well, literally, you know, get your degree, get a good job. I really think, and I go to a liberal arts school, so I'm a little biased. I go to Benedictine College. I think college is just the opportunity to really hone in on what gets you passionate, but be very circular in a way about it. Be very holistic in the different ways and viewpoints that you can be or learn about your passion, and then get you ready to show that passion to the world or to use it in a job or use it in a career, whatever way that you do it. Okay, okay. So you're bought into the traditional liberal arts, become a broader person, 
but also to just hone in on your specific endeavors, basically. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're you're a year in on a scale of one to ten. How was it? Oh, there's so many factors. <laughs> Overall, I'd probably give it a seven. You know, it it was really good, but there's lots of lots of things that made it um, not a complete ten. But I'm very optimistic. It was a really good year. Okay, well, I guess we'll dig into that. What was good? And then later I'm going to ask not what was bad, but what could be improved. Right. <laughs> what was good? So first off, I love Atchison. I love Benedictine College. It's a smaller college, so it's really cool to be with um, with people that were a lot like me and in an area where I could get to know people pretty well because it's a smaller college. Um, I really love the campus. It's beautiful. The fall weather, also amazing. But probably my favorite part were the classes. So I'm a secondary education and theology major. And whenever I was in a theology or education class, I just felt myself light up. I was so excited. I left every class with just that buzzed feeling when you learn something new and you want to tell everyone you know about it multiple times. Classes were probably my favorite part of the year. That's spectacular. I'm a teacher. That is what many of us teachers want to hear, which is yeah. probably why, you know, you're making A's because you're giving us what we like, you know, but I'm, I'm just really glad that it lit you up and made you happy. Um, what could be improved? So I know I mentioned right before that this I like the smallest of the college, but also on the other hand, I definitely would have liked maybe a bigger experience just so I could meet more people and um, be able to have that more holistic experience, that side of things. Improvement, also not getting cut short because of coronavirus. That would have been great. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The cost of meeting more friends and really settling in, but then coronavirus happened, which is okay, but could be improved. <laughs> right. At my school, we lost roughly half of the semester. We right. did the entire thing over Zoom. Um, I, I guess some schools just flat out quit. What did your school do? Yeah, so we were on spring break when we kind of got the news that we were, or yeah, shortly after spring break. So we went on Zoom as well. So half of my classes were Zoom classes that were on time and then the other half were recorded lectures that I could kind of do whenever so that was what my school day looked like okay and it, it just sort of killed the social aspect of school which is oh, not sure. so great it just turned it into a, a work situation I think for yeah. a lot of students and I think that was one of the epic problems that that occurred um what did you learn about yourself um I, I guess maybe in both situations, both as a college student and then as a college student coping with Zoom school? Right. Oh, that's a really great question. Freshman year, I learned a lot of things. The number one thing I probably learned about myself <laughs> that college really shows you is that you are not going to be perfect on the first try. <laughs> it's different than high school where you kind of go in with your same friends. You go in knowing the teachers and knowing the area. But in college, I kind of got hit in the face with, whoa, I don't know how to do college. I don't know how to pay for college or pay for bills or do all these things and kind of give myself the patience that I'm learning that it's okay to be like that. That's something I learned in the college realm in general. With coronavirus, um, I learned how much leisure and hobbies really help out in life. Before, hobbies were just kind of fun things I'd do on the weekend if I had time. But then the coronavirus, they kind of became my life and my breath because mm. I get so bogged down in Zoom and 
and talking to my friends on the phone when I just wanted to see them and all these pressures or these things that were not as fun, that leisure became something I needed to kind of get my energy back up and get my air back up. So that was very important. I, I feel like some people actually thrived in this environment to a certain degree. And then yeah. I, I think we thrived in some ways and then we were damaged in others. Um, did you feel in what ways, in what ways do you think maybe you thrived? Yeah, honestly, I think I leaned towards the thriving end of the spectrum because I, I'm an extrovert. I love talking to people, but there's a big, big part of me that really enjoys, like I said before, leisure and solitude. And so being able to kind of make my own schedule and get up early and have a cup of coffee and pray and then go do my schoolwork and then bake a little and have this more flowy um contemplative almost time I I loved it immensely so I'm, I'm kind of grateful for it honestly in certain regards yeah in certain regards I will say that that's true for me too uh, what wound up happening with me was I don't think I made any kind of a schedule or anything like that for about the first yeah. three days and then I found myself reading the news on the internet for about four hours a day and I... then I think emotionally I was just a mess I was just a puddle on the floor at that point. I just was worried about everything and just feeling like I was wasting time. Then I started setting some rules for myself and making a schedule, and I wound up doing similar things. Like, oh, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to do some writing for about an hour. I'm going to do some prayers after that. And, and just I started weightlifting, and I started running, and I started teaching, and I just established the schedule. And then I just, I guess, tried to thrive you know, if I possibly could. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm really glad that you did. So, yeah. uh, okay, so then I know you want to get into speaking. And, and I think that you are fantastic and will be fantastic. What do you hope to do with speaking? Mm. Yeah, my vision for speaking in whatever way that manifests, if it's on a larger scale or a smaller scale, um, is to be really honest and to kind of talk about the things that people don't normally talk about. Mm. Because growing up, when, when I listen to talks or when I listen to homilies or all these different things, while the meat and what the speaker was talking about was so good, I always felt just overwhelmed with the same phrases and the same fluff and the very surface level things. And this is specifically pertaining to faith because I would like to talk about Jesus because that's that's the man. That's right. <laughs> who I love. But so yeah, while it all was true, my heart was aching to just for an honest, you know, tell me as it is. Like I want to be a saint, man. So let's let's get at it. Let's let's kind of gloss not gloss over um, the real things that we need to talk about. So my hope is to be really honest and to be vulnerable in the ways I'm called to be vulnerable, to be passionate in the ways I'm called to be passionate, to kind of convict people in an uplifting way and myself, and kind of challenge all of us and the ways that we don't really talk about so that we all can grow together in whatever way that is. So I know that's very overall and kind of vague because I don't know the specifics, but really being honest um, with whatever topic I'm, I'm talking about is something that I aspire to do. Can you, can you give an example, maybe either from a role model that you have or a speech that you heard, just something that just really illustrates this, this vulnerability? Okay, I'm terrible with remembering names, but the first man that came to mind, his first name is Joel. I'll have to look up his name later. But I was at a um, LTLC Life Teen Leadership Conference at Benedictine College my junior year of high school. And Joel gave a talk on the prodigal son 
which is a story that we've heard so many times and we all could probably tell the message that we've you know, heard at Sundays or heard on YouTube or whatever. But he talked about it, about the perspective through the elder son. Oh, interesting. And the way that the elder son, he was held back because of his pride. But we don't really talk about pride. If we do talk about pride, we're like, oh, you know, we're prideful and it's bad. But he went to the root and kind of called me out. I felt like personally called out on how pride holds you back from the gifts that the father wants to give you. And I've never heard it that way. And I felt wounded, but in a really good way that kind of opened me up towards um, being honest with myself and becoming more virtuous, which was a lot more helpful than a fluffy, kind of nice, you know, we're all the prodigal son, yay. But he took it from a different perspective and really helped me grow from that. That's that's well said. Could you, could you back up and just tell us the story of the prodigal son for people who just may not quite remember the details? But I, I think we could underscore a few things if you did. Yeah, for sure. So the prodigal son is a story in the Bible that Jesus tells to get a point across. But there's one son, and he goes to his father, and he says, Father, you know, you're great, but I'd like my inheritance now, which is pretty much telling the father that you're dead to me. I want all the money and all the money that you owe me. So this son takes the money and goes and spends it on, and we can assume, you know, money and land and girls and all those things. And he ends up with nothing because he wasted his money on just fluffy things that the world offers. And so it, the Bible literally says he's eating with the pigs. and He decides, well, you know what? I'll go back to my father. At least he can treat me like one of his servants. I'll apologize. He'll take me as a servant. And so as he, start, he starts going back to his father, and the father catches sight of him from afar, which is always one of my favorite details, which means that the father was waiting for him. And instead of the son getting off this apology and the father being disappointed, the father runs to him and embraces him and throws a celebration for the son, the prodigal son, being welcomed home, even though the prodigal son wasted all the money. And then the elder son, so the father, two sons, the point that kind of Joel talked about, um, he's there too, but he got mad at his father because he says, Father, I've been with you all this time. I've never messed up. You've never thrown me a party. You've never done any of these things. Why would you do that? And the father just replied, well, everything that you have, I've already given to you. So come, let us celebrate the son that's returned home. So that's that story of the prodigal son. I love it. And just something I, I want to tease out for people, just because I think it's so good, is that when we hear this story, I, I think a lot of people do um, identify primarily with the prodigal son just yeah. from the standpoint that he's the lead character in the story. So you, you identify with him because he gets the most words in the story and it's basically, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's his character arc. It's his, his thing. And I think right. we can all sort of relate to times when maybe we let our parents down or we let, you know, an authority figure down or maybe just a friend. And then we just kind of hoped for some mercy because we let other people down because he just went the full hedonist, wine, women, and song, just the whole thing. Yeah. Then he winds up broke. He wasted every last nickel after telling his father, I wish you were dead, essentially. Right. So, he, so he wastes all this, then he comes back home. But this one person said, well, yeah, but look at it from the point of view of the older son, which, yeah. which is cool because the older son is kind of like nose to the grindstone. And then dad tells him, you know, you could have had a party anytime you wanted. All you needed to do was ask. And, right. and I think some of us workaholics, I can be a workaholic. We need to hear that. That, yeah. you know what, it's great that you're a workaholic, except it's not so great. You know, <laughs> like, chill, have a party, relax just a little bit. And then a third character, of course, is the dad. And we've always been in that circumstance, too, because sometimes we have to sort things out between two younger people. 
you know, and are you going to be the, the loving parent or are you going to be the, the wrathful parent, you know, right. the, the upset parent? It's just, it's cool because you could do this with any story. You could look at it from all of the characters' point of view. Right. I suppose if it were Animal Farm, you could look at it from the pig's point of view and you could be like, what <laughs> is this guy doing here in our pit eating right. our food? What the, you know, could somebody get yeah. this guy out of here? You know, yeah, that'd so, be fun. <laughs> yeah, so I just I, I love that. So I, I hope you succeed as a speaker like that, and and that's a good role model. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about speaking before we move on to slam poetry? Speaking, yeah, it's definitely something that's always been on my heart, and not even my dream isn't so much like thinking of speaking specifically. Like I want to speak to 500 people one day at a conference, but the, the overflowing of my heart is just that I have words to say and I want to share them and perhaps that manifests in speaking. I love that because I love using my voice and using my passion and kind of being in front of people and being like, ah, this is so cool. Um, but we'll, we'll see how that manifests. But I just know there, there's something inside me. I have words to say, God, I'm not me. God has words. He wants to say through me. He has um, ideas or statements or things that he wants to say through me in whatever way that manifests. I'm really excited, but we'll see. It's very much a, a small thing right now, but we'll see what God does in that. <laughs> so it sounds like you're cool going wherever it takes you. Yeah, exactly. And if it takes exactly. you to audiences that have five people or they have 5,000 people, you're just going to be yeah. cool, cool with it either way. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So just, yeah, we're going to do as good of a job as possible and hopefully the right people are there to hear it. Exactly. Yeah, it's beautiful. Okay. I also know that you like slam poetry. Yeah. And uh, I must be the world's most ignorant English major <laughs> because I, I think I vaguely heard of slam poetry. What is slam poetry? So slam poetry, from my knowledge, because I've just – watch YouTube videos and kind of gone into it is kind of, I, I see it as a mix between rap and poetry, but it's poetry that's performed. So a lot of times writers will write this poetry for the specific intent of the rhyming scheme and the way that it's spoken to be spoken towards an audience. So it's kind of like also combining acting and poetry, but in a, um, yeah, in a performed setting. Do you have one for us that we could hear? Yes, I, I do have one. I will pull it up right now. This one is one that I wrote recently that I performed at um, Benedictine Art Talent Show called Jam for the Lamb. And I wrote it off of the first sentence of the catechism, which for St. James, anyone from St. James who's listening right now, you definitely have memorized. But I really wanted to get to the heart of the first sentence of the catechism. So I just wrote this little three-minute slam poem about it. Well, let's, let's get slammed. It sounds All great. Right. Yeah, slammed it is. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plane of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. Have you ever thought that at every time and in every place, God draws close to you. From the whisper of breath put in Adam's chest, to the Ten Commandments given on mountains crest, to the God-man dwelling into human flesh, and preaching and healing and being put to death, that was God loving you. This means that when he created the stars, 
he thought of your name. When he parted the Red Sea, he imagined your gain. When his hands met nails and his head met thorns, that was God loving you, even with you not yet born. As the Catechism states and the Eucharist relates, and behind the confessional wall he waits because he wants to draw close to you. And this is the foundation of our faith. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. And that's why the Bible is a love letter over just a nice story. It is a tale of two lovers trying to find each other again after being separated by sin and fallen glory. It is the autobiography of Israel. It is the personal narrative of the church. It is a tale of all that Jesus did to get to you. So that is why it is living and breathing and still works. So the next time you read the Bible, and if you're like me, you may have to dust it off and crack it open because it's been a while. Look through the lens of a continuing story. Close your eyes and hear your name spoken in every line and syllable and phrase in Isaiah and the Psalms and Matthew and John. Can you hear him call you in the words you read upon? He says, you are the prize I died to win. You are the pearl of great price. You are worth all of my suffering. You are the apple of my eye. You are the one who my soul loves, the well for my living water. You are my son, and you are my daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. But this too, will you not believe? I took on bare bones in a heartbeat, only to lay it down by climbing, bleeding on a tree, willingly to save you, willingly to love you, and I would do it all over again just to say it one more time. You are my beloved. You are mine. So press your hands into my wounded side. Place your heart near my scarred chest. Hear my breath. Every heartbeat is yours and now until death. Don't you see? I come to you so you don't need to hide. I became man so that you could be mine. All of this is an invitation for you. All of this is a piece of God's heart, and he will patiently wait for you until he'll meet you wherever you are. So I hope you don't forget, and I hope I have made this clear. From Eden to now, from Genesis to here, from all of salvation history, God has been calling your name, and he has been drawing you. And that's it. <laughs> that's great. I think you need a YouTube channel. Ah, uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's one way to kind of get past uh, the gatekeepers and get promoted, you know, because if yeah. you've got a channel and I don't know if you've got all kinds of views at a certain point, then maybe it's easier to get the part, you know? Maybe. That's a good point. I'll yeah. think about it. Well, yeah. just otherwise everything depends upon one rehearsal, but if the director can hear you sing and see you act and to kind of do this in their spare time, then if you have a shaky rehearsal uh, or, or tryout, then, then maybe it won't make any difference. Maybe they'll just take you anyway because they've already stereotyped you in the role that they need. Exactly. So just, just kind of tossing that out there. Um, okay, so we're going to get a shift into some practicality here. Uh, I'd like to talk about scholarships. Of course, people worry about student loan debt. Uh, a little-known fact, Washington Post had an article a few years back that said 37% of all graduates do graduate with zero debt of any kind. I mean, so we hear about all the people with debt, 
but more than a third don't have any debt. So, so I'm just very curious, how did you rack up 116,000 in scholarships? Yeah, so the majority of those scholarships comes from participating in the presidential scholarship at Benedictine College. So it's an um, award, a competitive award, what's the word, competition, okay, there we go, <laughs> um, where they invite students to come to its campus and compete for the scholarship by doing two things. One is having an interview with two faculty or staff members, and then the other is through an essay. And so I competed in that scholarship during my senior year, and I was blessed enough to be awarded with one of 10 of those scholarships that provided me with full tuition scholarship. And then on the side, I applied for some smaller scholarships just by looking it up on the internet and submitting an essay, and so some of that money came from those as well. That's pretty incredible. So, so I guess let's get into maybe some of the background. Um, We'll just do kind of a quick look at some four commonly cited factors for getting scholarships. Um, ACT or SAT, did these matter? So to my knowledge, I don't know on the other side of things. For certain scholarships, yes, because they would say there needs to be a minimum of, what, you know, 26, 28 ACT. For the presidential scholarship, you needed to have a certain minimum I don't quite remember to just be in the competition so on certain ends yes it does but I don't know on the um, other side of things on the upper end like does right. the 36 get more credibility than say somebody with a 30 for example that that right. you don't know but there was certainly it was a floor like you yes. needed to have like a 26 to a 28 somewhere in that ballpark right okay how about GPA how much did they care about that I think kind of the same spectrum as ACT, there was kind of a floor for certain scholarships. Um, but yeah, on the other side of things, I don't know for sure. But it is helpful to have a higher one to get into the more higher-end scholarships. That's right. Okay. And so, yeah, back in the day, G GPA was oftentimes a symbol of how hard somebody is willing to work consistently over time. Um, right. Like people, I think they sort of mistakenly think, oh, it's kind of like a measure of intelligence. But it's, it's maybe more of a measure of just consistency and effort, um, right. which, which people want. Um, how about letters of recommendation? How much were those weighted? I think, I know for one of the scholarships I applied for, it was pretty well rated, well weighted. It was one of the big things that the college was looking for in the scholarships. Because I think colleges can ask you all the questions you want, but they really can't get to know you until they ask and quote, quote, unbiased person that is not yourself. So letters of recommendation were kind of big for a lot of the bigger scholarships that I was applying for. Okay, okay. And then how about outside activities? Yeah, I think I think it was helpful to just, for the um, people that I was applying for, to kind of see how well-rounded I was or was not in whatever case that was. So it was helpful to kind of list everything I've ever done, even if I didn't think it was significant or not. Okay, okay. Um, Am I leaving anything out that really weighed in? I think being unique is something that really weighed in in a lot of the scholarships mm. I applied for. And that was some advice I was given before this kind of scholarship season because the people who are reading scholarships will read dozens and dozens, even hundreds and hundreds. But being unique about your um, where you come from and your background and your activities I think really gives you a leg up or at least helped me. Well, I'm going to guess that a chunk of your uniqueness was you were in 20 plays. <laughs> Maybe. I think that helped. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And plus also the singing 
and the uh, performing in general and the speaking. I, I just, I'm going to assume that these were some of the unique factors. Was there anything else that was unique that they glommed onto? I think it's, it, at least for me when I was interviewing, it's a lot of the smaller questions, like your strengths or weaknesses, or one of my favorite questions is what book you're reading now. Oh, yeah. My interviewer for Presidential Scholars asked me that question, and we got on that topic for a couple minutes. It was probably one of the heavier ones, which is such a simple question, but that I was able to, I was talking about a psychology book I was reading, and it was different you know, than like the Bible or Harry Potter, and so little things like that, I think really weighed in a lot. Okay. I Yeah, I if you can get them talking about something for three, four minutes, especially a book in a right. university, that has got to be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think was the most important thing, scholarship-wise? I think the most important thing for me was being really intentional about the scholarships I was applying for. For me, anyways, it was helpful to kind of choose fewer scholarships and work really hard at them then kind of see all the scholarships I was eligible for and kind of apply for them all. So there's a scholarship I received recently for this next upcoming year that I worked so hard for and I had no idea if I was going to get it or not but I worked I did my absolute best and I ended up receiving it because I think I spent all my time on that one scholarship mm. which that saved me lots of money because of winning the scholarship, but then also lots of time from just kind of applying to whatever. Yeah. So picking your shots very carefully. Yes. I heard somebody one time say, this is part of the whole 80-20 principle that 20% of what we do gives us 80% of our results. It's a principle in economics, but, but this person said uh, he loves to put all of his eggs in one basket <laughs> and yeah. then watch that basket very carefully. It sounds yeah. kind of like that's what you did. It's a move for sure. <laughs> okay. So then we have to kind of think about where college is leading. So you're majoring in theology and right. that does not necessarily pay 50 to $55,000 a year, which is the median income in the United States. Right. But I feel like you've got a big advantage because if you go through school with no debts of any kind, you can walk out and not have to worry about student loan payments so a person maybe can afford to make under the median. Uh, so you can, you can do your dream job. I just think that that's fantastic. Uh, I guess where I'm going with this is, was that part of your consideration? Are you, uh, if you didn't get any scholarships, would you have taken out some loans? I definitely think I would have um, and done a lot of research into it. I know my dad is very talented at money and budgeting and everything, so definitely gotten his input on it. Loans aren't ideal, but if you do them smartly, at least from what I've heard from my dad, he knows a lot more than me, they aren't the worst thing in the world. They're there for a reason. So I definitely think I would have taken out some loans and been really smart about it to, to go to Benedictine and to get that education. Okay, so you would have relied on the experts in a big way. Yes. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Okay, let's talk about the scheduling it takes to get the scholarships that you received. What else was going on your senior year, and how did you manage to have the time to apply for scholarships? Ooh, yeah, senior year. No, there's a reason it was such a fun year, because I felt like I was doing everything. I was doing the musical, and I was doing CYO later, and I was applying for scholarships and working on my AP classes. So definitely everything you can imagine was going on, and I loved it. I loved it. Um, for scholarships, for me, it was really helpful. I carved out specific days 
like this Saturday, I'm going to Pilgrim Coffee House on 127th and Metcalf because it's my favorite place. And I'm going to stay there for a couple hours, if not more. And I'm going to work on this scholarship. And I especially did that over Christmas break. So I spent a lot of my Christmas break at coffee, sh <laughs> coffee shops working on scholarships. And that was helpful for me because I think I would have gotten distracted if I just did it, you know, one hour a day or whatever. So being intentional about those weekends or those break times, that's when I got my scholarships done. Gotcha. What would you recommend to people if they wanted to more effectively manage their time? Get a planner. <laughs> that's, that's all I would say because it's so helpful for me. Get a planner and tell your parents when you're going to do it so they can bug you. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I guess that, that accountability factor, right? That your parents would say, yeah, but weren't you supposed to be working on scholarships right now? Exactly. Okay. Okay. That's fair enough. Um, let's get back to performing. What is enriching about all the acting and singing and speaking that you do? I kind of mentioned this before, but the most enriching part for me is communicating something beyond what mere words and a piece of paper can do. And that's why I really love musical theater. And something I heard all the time from my directors was that if you can't speak, you sing. You know, sing. There's a reason music communicate something that words can't and same with spoken word if I can't just speak I'm going to perform poetry and if I can't just um, have pictures I'm going to act and so all of these performing opportunities allow me to communicate a deeper human truth that I want the audience to know through different fun and creative means that's awesome extra layers of meaning and emotion and how do these things enrich the audience then Because when you perform on a stage, there's a, there's a, a, what's it called, curtain, a veil in a literal sense. But I think performing tears the veil between strangers, between human beings, and allows us to kind of sit in the human reality of heartache and love and pain and joy, at least with theater. We're all strangers. I don't know most people in the audience for the most part, unless it's a family show or whatever. But being able to perform kind of tears that veil of being strangers in between and allows us to kind of look at the realness of humanity. And then we all grow in what it means to be a human, even if we don't know each other. That's really well said, that these stories just allow us to see what we have in common yeah, as people. Exactly. But then also to just cut to the core. So that's just beautiful. Um, how important do you think it is for a performer to pay close attention to the audience? Because I've you just hear this both ways, you know, like you hear, you hear some authors saying, I, I'm just trying to do the best work I, I can possibly do. I, I've heard other authors like Kurt Vonnegut said that he wrote every book that he wrote for his sister. I, he just had one very specific person in mind as his audience. And then I think other people are trying to write for everybody in the whole globe, like a Stephen King or Danielle right. Steele. Uh, how about for you? When you perform, do you have like a particular person in mind, or or what are you? Who are you doing this for? Right. I found, at least for me in the past, if I know certain people in the audience, it actually throws me off a lot more because I end up performing for them and what I think they'll like versus performing for the integrity of the character, um, <laughs> which is important because I think in acting or singing or anything, if you go outside of the integrity or what the show is made for, it can get a little wonky. Um, 
Yeah, so definitely, I mean, it's cheesy, but performing for the audience of one, performing for God, takes off the stress because he loves me. So if I mess up, it's going to be fine. But not getting in my head so much because I want to share the story. And I want, I know that the way I shared the story is what I need to give. So I don't want that to be tainted by thinking of how other people are going to perceive it, especially specific people I know. Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for not worrying too much about the audience. Yeah. You know, maybe the best way to serve them is to not uh, put them in right. the catbird seat, so to speak. Um, okay, so let's, uh, let's get a little bit of advice. Suppose somebody much younger than you was attracted to acting, singing, speaking, and performing. What advice would you give this younger person? The advice I would give them is definitely to, to really dive in and put a lot of effort into what makes you unique, you specifically. I think in the performing field, it's really easy to get caught up in what the other people have and trying so hard to be like the other person, especially when you're auditioning because you want to be the character and you see all these you know, 10 other girls who are way better than you. And so what do you do? You try to be more like them. But I think the key for me in acting, that I'm still learning as a human being, is that I'm creative with my specific gifts for a specific purpose. So I'm doing both myself and the audience and whoever else is around me a disservice by not diving into what I was given as a performer, as a speaker, as a poet. Um, so really diving into your talents and your specific passions that are unique to you is something I would definitely recommend, especially at a young age. Because if you learn that young, then you are years and years ahead of other people. <laughs> how, how do I figure out who I am that's unique compared to just imitating the other people who are auditioning? For me, a lot of it came to character journaling. And I know I mentioned before, I really like watching videos and watching shows of actors and actresses beforehand. But too much of that's a little dangerous because then you start acting like, you know, Carol Burnett or Sutton Foster or whoever you're watching when you want to be you. So that's helpful for um, kind of like doing your basic research. But if you really want to find where you want to bring the character into asking yourself the questions and even having someone to bounce it off of to talk to you about it, like a podcast like this, but instead of being Madeline Jager, I'd be the character I was making, forming that yourself is how you can dig deep roots into your uniqueness versus asking someone else to answer the question. I love that. Yeah. Just really, really getting into the character and just, I guess, asking the character questions and then just seeing what comes out of that. Yeah, That's really good. Okay, um, now suppose you met another younger person who just appeared phenomenally talented. And this person was, they're younger than you, so I don't know, maybe they're 14, 15. Very hardworking in acting, singing, and speaking. But in school, this girl is making Ds. You know, she's got three, four, five Ds on the report card. She just doesn't like school. What advice would you give this person? Well, the first thing that came to mind is I'd really ask her is the main reason that you're getting D's just because you don't like school or is there something else going on there? Because burnout is a very common thing, not only for performers, but for every human. If you love something, you're going to give everything to it. And then the other priorities you need to attend to get kind of left behind, which in this instance would make sense. So really kind of diving deep of what's burning her out mm. and 
helping her find the ways that she can she doesn't have to love school because not everyone loves learning and not everyone you know that's just not how you are but there has to be something in school that can um, help her learn not only to learn educationally but learn how to be a better actor and to be a better whatever her career is so kind of finding the heart of um, what that issue is and then trying to put it in a better light so she can see how school is needed for not only acting but just life in general well, I like that you're really trying to understand her, but, yeah. but you're also, you have an assumption in there that she can do better than these and that she should. Should, right, should exactly. she? Should she do better than these? What if she's going to be a great actress? Does she need better than these? Oh, that, that could be a trick question. Because um, I also love school, so this is hard. I think if she can do better than these, then then she should strive for that. Because if you want to be a great actress, if you want to be a great anything, your greatness should be in every area of life. And I wouldn't really trust someone um, who isn't aspiring for greatness in every aspect of their life, because that isn't, that isn't what we're called to in a certain sense. That's kind of putting all your eggs in one thing, but not, but kind of slacking in the other thing. A really good person with a good work ethic works hard in everything, regardless of if you like it or not. So if she can, that's great. But if not, like that's a whole different story. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm just looking at this also too from a teacher point of view. I, I, I really like what you just said because I haven't really thought about that, that if I'm lazy in some areas, then how are people supposed to believe that I'm hardworking in others, right. uh, especially in terms of my obligations? Like nobody can work hard at everything. But, right. but in terms of your obligations, this is just something that I'm thinking about as a teacher. If you actually tried hard in each class and then never did a stitch of homework outside that class, you would probably still make C's or B's and occasionally right. A's. So I guess I'm sort of wondering maybe this, this poor girl just isn't doing much in class, you know, right. let, let alone out of. So I don't know. Maybe it is a little bit of a trick question. Um, yeah. Is there something about acting and performing that people just don't know? Ooh. Probably a lot, but I guess they wouldn't know if they didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> something, I'm going to guess they wouldn't know. Hmm. They know we're all dramatic, that's for sure. <laughs> yes. Um, I think people don't understand the amount of work we put into it. Mm. And maybe this is something I don't understand about people who do sports as well you kind of assume like oh it's a natural thing they just show up on the field and they play well and I think people kind of think that about musicals too like oh they kind of practice and it's fine but if people don't understand that day one of rehearsal looks vastly different than show night and another thing people don't understand is how vastly different the show looks from Monday of tech week to Thursday of performance it's oh, crazy yeah. how much hard work and hours and everything that actors put in it's not just a talent it's not just something you know they throw the camera on us and we go but it's a lot of hard work that we learn that we learn over time is there a certain amount of panic on monday of tech week which is i think that's the name for the week before yeah oh all the panic and i i don't think maybe out of my 20 almost 20 shows only a handful of shows have i ever felt ready going into tech week most of shows i've doubted if it's going to get you know if it's going to actually work out it's a lot of panic but it always does but there's still doubt because it's there's a cavern in between where you are monday to where you are performance day wow if we could grow that much every four days in everything right. else in the rest of our life oh my goodness i love that 
we'd be, we'd have flying cars. It would just be exactly. the greatest thing. <laughs> It'd be awesome. Okay, so in the next five years, then, what type of impact would you like to make? I really, I want to be someone, and we're talking about work ethic a lot. I want to be someone who just establishes a work ethic, but not a greater work ethic, not for anyone other than Jesus and myself. <laughs> I want people to know me or remember me as someone who just gave everything into whatever I was doing, but specifically in conversations and just being really present to people. And the impact I want to make is that they felt known and seen by me just by listening, because I think that's more important than any other thing I can do. And that's why I want to be a teacher, because I want to make impact on kids. Of course, I want to help them you know, know more about theology and know more about and get good grades and all these things. But at the heart of it, the impact I want to leave them with is that they had someone who cared about them and listened to them and have that come first before everything else. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Like, yeah, like one of those old sayings, like nobody will know. They, people won't remember everything you say, but they will always remember how you made them feel. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Maddie, this is Madeline. This has just been absolutely fantastic. I, I just have one last question for you. Um, let's just fast forward to the end of your life. Well, maybe not the end, but when you're 100 years old and you are sitting on the front porch of your house and your loving husband is holding your hand and you are just surrounded by, by children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, everybody is nearby, and you are looking back on a great life, what three or four things are you most excited by? Things I'm thinking about. First off, <laughs> I think I'd be most excited or proud of myself for running a 5K because I, and Mr. Webker, this is very different from you, I do not like to run at all. I never have. I've always thought I'm terrible at it because I am. But I, I thought about it multiple times. I think I'd regret if I didn't get myself to run a 5K. No matter how fast or slow I was, <laughs> I think I'd be very excited if I got over one of my big fears and um, big fears and what's the word? Yeah. Something I'm afraid of, but that would be one thing. Um, another thing I think would be traveling. I'd be really excited about seeing the world and kind of putting myself out there in that instance, but those are more superficial things. <laughs> another thing I'd be excited by, I think, just by whatever legacy I leave behind, whether it is a family and kids, um, if I'm called to religious life, like my community, my convent, my immediate family I have now, my students, just seeing where they're at and hopefully whatever impact I leave on them and knowing that they're in good hands as I, you know, if I am dying, leaving this earth, but that's very dramatic. <laughs> that, that'd be awesome because life is so much about sharing what you have with other people. And if I hopefully do that sort of well at the end of my life, I'd be rather excited. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It's a beautiful answer and wonderful to hear. Well, I really appreciate this just a ton, Madeline, and I just wish you well in all of your endeavors, and I hope you get that YouTube channel up and going. <laughs> Thank you. I'll keep you updated. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. This was really awesome. My pleasure. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide. Until next time.